You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist as Micha. Hi, I'm here with Mark Gottlieb. Mark, you know, Yitzchak couldn't make it tonight, and uh, we had a great Happy session. To fill in. Yeah, look, uh, we had a great session last time, and of course, me, you, and I have a uh, have a, a great, great history about uh, darshaning. Not necessarily about old movies, but definitely as our program is darshaning about old movies and vintage TV. So I know that uh, we share a common interest in, and, and I think both of us bristle at the idea of viewing these type of subjects as just a lowbrow culture. Uh, there is quite a bit. Uh, first of all, it's an incredible mirror on where life was during the period that these programs were made. But there's also a, a, a tremendous amount of artistry to be found, uh, even in, in, in items that many people would be dismissive of. Um, so, Mark, what do you got for us tonight? Well, Avramel, I want to present for our audience and all our listeners the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone had a five-year run from 1959 to 1964 on CBS. In syndication, it became wildly popular. And I, I want to make the argument tonight that some elements of the Twilight Zone speak to the innate spirituality or the non materiality, the non-reductionist, the non-physicalist, the non-material dimensions of the world that we live in. And without getting too hyperbolic or, or making too large a claim for what the Twilight Zone can do, I could tell you what it did for me as a young person, you know, watching it in syndication, watching it in the mid to late 70s, I felt that the Twilight Zone was a matir for a religiously and spiritually infused world. The idea that's encapsulated, you know, so powerfully in the opening monologues that, <laughs> that Rod Serling, the genius, Mamesh, a genius of, of television, the small screen with his writing and his conceptualization, but those wonderful monologues he changed that, it he changed it a little bit but it was basically you're, it, you're traveling you're it. traveling through another dimension a dimension maybe you will do the we'll do the music here right a dimension not only of sight music, and sound classic music do, 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 not only of sight and sound but of mind <laughs> yeah I mean, so that, yeah. that says it all i mean frankly those those very words that you're traveling through another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, and a dimension that's not just limited to the physicality, to the gashmius of the world, but that one that acknowledges the reality of a of a of a spirit, of a of a being, of a substance that's beyond the material. And look, the Twilight Zone, you know, over 150, 160 episodes, maybe more. Uh, there's so many items to, to choose from, but you know, I'm gonna identify just a handful that, that for me on a very personal level, I, I continue to 
to think of them, they, they continue to, to make a Roshem a real, real impression on my mind. And again, and, I think- well, hey, uh, Mark, before, before you start, you know, I just want to, yeah. you, know, you know, again, part of Rod, and I know a lot about Rod, so I mean, you really, you know, opened up something that, that's, you know, I have a couple- <laughs> I didn't even of, know that. I didn't even know that, that you're a big Rod Sterling fan. Oh, I'm not surprised, you. Yeah, well, of course, well, but yeah, I didn't well, know that. Well, obviously, you know, you know, the program going into syndication was uh, extremely important for me as well. I used to, I used to come back from uh, Night Seder uh, wow. in the in the early '80s uh, when I was uh, learning in in Charatera in Queens, and I think at WPIX. Yes, uh, Channel Eleven. Channel That's Eleven. On, Channel right, Eleven. Right, and then I'd come back. And then we, you know, and then we, I think they sometimes had two episodes, one after the other. I think they yes, had like, yes, right, yes. right. So I'd come back from Night Seder, and uh, I, I lived in a certain Rob's house, and he had a secret television oh. <laughs> in his basement. And that's where I lived there. And then my roommate and I, you know, would then after we, you know, we had had our, our three solid storm of learning, then we would like uh, we would have our godless amalichim, so to speak. But I just want to read to you uh, before you present them, because I think, you know, it really underscores what you're saying. You know, the, the, the one that most people know is you're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. Um, but there's another one that goes, there's a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It's as vast as space and timeless as infinity. It's the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies, I remember this one, between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It's an area we call the twilight zone. And, um, or it's shadow and substance, things and ideas. So I think, you know, you know, Serling, um, many people criticize him, by the way, for overwriting. You know that they, they, they you know, he, he, he came uh, into maturity in a period where, you know, Playhouse 90 and all these. 90, yeah. Requiem for a heavyweight. Right. And, and, and most, you know, television couldn't do all the kinetic tricks it can do now with the camera. So a lot of it had to be conveyed with the words and the power of speech. And that's what Serling was a was a great wordsmith of. So you're right, Mark. Mark you know, he puts it right there on the table that we're going someplace else here. And, um, you know, you, you, you got so many options. So, you know, what, oh, yes, yeah. so many so, options. I'm going to just choose three quickly. I'll, I'll give a little one was that some of them were more heavy handed, as you, I think, alluded to already that they were written in a way that the the moral of the story was so obvious and other times it was more subtle and and you know more suggestive mm -hmm. and i think the first of my picks is is one of those um i would say both more obvious and more subtle and it's the episode that's called time enough at last which stars uh, a youngish Burgess Meredith, pre uh, Penguin, pre Penguin <laughs> days in Batman, pre uh, Rocky, you know uh, Mickey in, yeah. in his. Uh, I think he plays he plays a Jew there. He plays. I I think yes, Mickey he plays a Jew. Bird, Rocky yeah. Mickey is a Jew. Yeah. Burgess Meredith. Rocky Burgess Meredith was as yeah right. Burgess Meredith was as waspy as it comes. But you're right. Yeah. Once yeah. you get old, you can always play Jews, right? Yeah. <laughs> Rocky, and he had that voice. But, right. you know, in Time Enough at Last, the plot is, is pretty straightforward. Uh, you can picture in your mind's eye this bookish bank teller who is always sneaking 
uh, away from his work to read a book. He's obsessed by books. Uh, his shrewish wife doesn't give him a chance to read. His boss in the bank doesn't give him a chance to read. And one day he just finds himself near the vault in the bank and he's trying to sneak some reading in. So he goes into the vault and it shuts. And of course he hears a boom. And when he emerges from the vault, he has been saved from a nuclear holocaust, from a nuclear doomsday. And, you know, he's wandering through this desolate destruction and he's already getting forlorn and, and depressed and he's contemplating suicide because he's the only living being, the only living, the last living man on the planet. And as he's contemplating and considering and planning suicide, he notices that he's on the steps of the public library, this great big urban public library. And he totally changes gears and he, he's elated. He goes into the, into the library and he starts picking out books and he piles the books high and he's you know, got his different reading lists and what he's gonna read next and what he's gonna get, begin with. And as he's about to get into his first book, his eyeglasses fall off his nose and crack. And that's how the episode ends. It's very much a, a, a man plans and God laughs theme, you know, planning of mice and men. And in a very stark and I would say pretty laconic script, you get this powerful turnaround, this powerful twist where everything is desolate and depressed. Everything now is wonderful and, and, and it's joyous and he's elated. And then, of course, he comes crashing down again at the end. A classic of the Twilight Zone. Um, I, I think it's understated, but yet it, it certainly doesn't miss yeah. hitting, hitting home with you know, a powerful lesson of, of our ability to plan and our essential fragility in the face of the universe, in the face uh -huh. of the forces of the universe. Uh, that's the way you read it, you know. I I actually yeah. you know, I, I haven't seen it in a while, Mark. But my take on it was that uh, it was a it was a critique on obviously Bemis, you know, the character that's played yep. by Burgess Meredith. Um, it was a critique of his bookishness, of his snobbishness, of his inability, you know, to really be part and parcel of the world. You know, we sometimes we know we escape into books, movies and other things like that. But his escape was so total that he actually he was a quite uh, a unpleasant person uh, yes. among his friends and, 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 and co-workers. Um, well, I think I think there's some evidence, you know, in terms of your reading. If you if you look at at Serling's opening monologue and I'll just read it here, witness Mr. Henry Bemis a charter member in the fraternity of dreamers, a bookish little man whose passion is the printed page, but who is conspired against by a bank president and a wife and a world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. But in just a moment, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents or wives or clocks or anything else. He'll have a world all to himself without anyone. And I think that opening you know, setting of the stage or framing the, the issue certainly speaks to your point. But the way that Serling ends the episode in his closing monologue, 
the best laid plans of mice and men, and Henry Bemis, the small man in the glasses who wanted nothing but time. Henry Bemis, now just a part of a smashed landscape, just a piece of the rubble, just a fragment of what man has deeded to himself. Mr. Henry Bemis in the Twilight Zone. So you have really both elements of Raymond. I'd say your point of he becomes so inward and so alienated from other human beings from the world of mankind that he essentially becomes, you know, undone by his inwardness or undone by, you know, he, his his glasses break, making him really an obsolete or 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 you know broken human as a reflection, the material reflection of his disposition, his his attitude, his his ethos. Right, right. But it they, also uh, speaks of the irony of of having these great plans, finally getting what you wish, and then losing it all. Right. And, and again, you know, that is something that you find in a lot of the classic uh, Arabian night stories and the fairy tales of, of people who wishing for things, which end up, of course, being um, the opposite of what they can, what they're able to give you. The other element, Mark, that you're not really uh, zeroing in on, and I don't blame you because we don't live in that fear anymore. But in 1959, when this episode aired, Oh yeah, still, thought, still the, the vault, the, the atomic, the fear right. of the atomic bomb. Yeah, that's right. So this was some, and and I think that's I think that's part of what um, Serling means at the end when he talks about you know the rubble and that he's just part of it. Um, you know, in a way, um, Bemis, although he didn't drop the bomb, you know, Bemis's mindset definitely is it's the same. Ca- is right. It accelerates the bomb, or sometimes right. causes because, that because. Yeah. Because, again, part of it is the inability to communicate with others. The idea that there should be a bomb dropped by Russia, whatever country it is, on the other, comes from, uh, you know, comes from war and it comes from the inability to really connect. And, you know, as glorious as Bemis believes his books and world can be, but if it doesn't translate to real peace in his own family and his own circle and, of course, between countries, then that's what you do get is a world that's destroyed. So, yeah. you know, I, you know, I, I think there's, you know, you know using yes, the atomic, the atomic, the fear of the bomb definitely undergirds, you know, these themes and, and is both supported by and, and is expressed by you know that that motif. I mean, I I always thought it was like macabre that he's he's happy, like here he is everywhere around him. And again, right. you know, television didn't allow you at that time to show you know dead bodies everywhere. But obviously, right. that's what it would be. I mean, here is a guy frolicking in the death. Right. He's frolicking because he can find right. Like like it, right. it's 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 like it's it's he's he's a grotesque monster as far as I'm going. Now I I want to tell you, Mark, this is something which um. Um, we talked about uh, Yitzhak and I um, uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, when I talked about the director of this film. Uh, this little episode, you know, Serling, um, once the show became uh, a, a, a classified hit, people were sort of lining up uh, to be asked by Serling to, to act in it and to be part of it. Um, and uh, Serling chose, you know, he didn't write all the episodes, but uh, he had a, 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 a stalwart uh, group of directors, and this was actually John Brahm who directed it. And John Brahm was a, was a German Jew who escaped uh, Nazi Germany, and he, he uh, was the director of a, a number of very important films in the 1940s. 
uh, one that I highlighted a couple weeks ago, which is called Hangover Square uh, with Weird Krieger and the Lodger. So um, John Brahm is a, uh, uh, you know, he, and, and you can see that in those images, uh, you know, in 25 minutes, there's not, you, you can't do fancy camera stuff, but, you know, those images, like you say, of yeah, the, the library. The landscape, the desolate landscape was powerful for its Right, day. and you can see, right, and Brahm, I credit Brahm's uh, direction for, you know, really emphasizing that. Those those images are, are iconic, yeah. Okay, what's, uh, so once you, you want to be on a roll here, you want to yeah, be a roll here? Let's, Let's let's uh, go, to, go to your next one. Of course, you're going to have to respond to my picks. But go ahead. What's your next one? Okay, my next one is the second season episode, "The Eye of the Beholder." This is a classic episode. It's it's often used as a trigger film in in philosophy classes or in you know seminars and retreats. But it really does. It it still packs a punch. It still remains fresh. I think. And of course, the the backdrop is a, a woman is in a hospital room with her head entirely wrapped by, by bandages. And the, the assumption is that she's been hideously deformed and that the, the, the medical doctors, the, the staffers at the hospital are all trying to give her another treatment that could, that could rescue her from her hideous disfiguring face and that could bring her back into the community of the living of, of healthy people. And it's, it's mentioned that this is her 11th hospital visit, which is the maximum that the state allows. And already you're getting a portend of the, the involvement of a state of some kind of totalitarian state. And that if if this operation fails, she'll be sent to a village where others of her kind are segregated. And finally, they're about to unwrap the, the bandages and you can see on the televisions throughout the hospital in the different rooms, the leader of the state speaks of this glorious conformity that everybody is gonna have to maintain a, a, a glorious, beautiful conformity. And at that point, they remove Janet's bandages and she's revealed to be a beautiful woman, a, a very attractive, Young woman, her it's face. It's Ellie is- May, actually. <laughs> actually, it's Ellie May Clampett, who was the oh. the, the the beautiful was that siren Donna Douglas? Donna Douglas. Yes, of course, it's not her voice, but it's Donna Douglas's very uh, very beautiful face and body that is on display. Yes, and of course, as as her beautiful face is re- revealed, you can see the doctors, you know, are, are aghast. They pull back, aghast at 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 how ugly she is and how how they failed this this treatment once again and you could see now the lights go on in the room and you could see all the doctors and all the nurses have this mis- these misshapen faces these asymmetrical nightmarish ghoulish faces and miss tyler janet runs out of the room crying hysterically she runs a few rooms down the hallway and she comes face to face with another freak this handsome looking man who says that they're going to take good care of her. They're going to take her to this village that was already alluded to that's up in the north. And uh, he says that everything will be good and that you'll have a sense of belonging and a sense of community. And the, the, the episode concludes with this benefactor, this savior advising Janet to remember the old adage that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. 
And that's how the episode ends. And here's Serling's final monologue, his closing monologue. Now the questions that come to mind. Where is this place and when is it? What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation from that norm? The answer is, it doesn't make any difference because the old saying happens to be true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder in this year or a hundred years hence on this planet or wherever there is human life, perhaps out among the stars, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, lesson to be learned in the twilight zone. Right. So wow. I, I, get, yeah. I, I get chills even just thinking about it. Okay. I'll tell you, Mark, once again, you know, this episode, <laughs> I've seen it a number of times. And I'll tell you. I hope they're not going to deconstruct it, Avramo. <laughs> Look, certain things, I don't know if I can control myself. But here, here's it's, what it's I not, it's not the It's not the masks. No, 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 no. I'm not going to talk about the prosthetics and the rubber and the noses. I'm not going to talk about that. Okay. About what, 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 what I find, the question is like this, Mark. Um, these programs were shown uh, over and over in syndication. And, you know, you know, they had marathons, like I said, and people were watching them over again. And, and, and really, when people talk about their favorite Twilight Zone episodes, what they mean is, which one can I see again and again? Which one packs right. the punch over and over again? Right. So I'll tell you, the my problem with Eye of the Beholder is that when I see it the second time, it's so obvious that the the, the reveal is almost there in the cards right away. Um, you 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 don't you never see these extremely wonderful um, uh, people who are at the who are in the hospital the doctor speaks so silent they speak they have such great bedside manner they speak so calmly everybody is right and everyone is so encouraging but you never see their faces and i think the average person would say what's going on why aren't we seeing them and i think part of the conceit is you're supposed to believe that since she's in bandages so you're sort of in a way, getting the POV of the patient. Otherwise, you know, for 25 minutes, you know, like you never see them, you never see their face, you see the back of their heads and you see other things, but it's sort of like, it's like you see the strings. I don't know. What do you think? Look, it's like if you saw this, the sixth sense a second time, it would still, it would not be <laughs> as powerful, of course, as that first viewing. There's no question, but you would still be, be awed by how subtle the clues are and how the the ideas still hang together. I think even watching the eye of the beholder a second or a third or fourth or fifth time, you still can suspend some measure of belief to know that there's this big reveal that has an, a major philosophical implication and that it's done in a way that it it kind of kind of winks at you, but it does it in a in a, I would say not too heavy-handed, but effective way. Yeah. But I well, hear your argument. Right, I hear right, it right. again. It's more. This is not really deconstruction. It's more like, you know, uh, I, I think it, you, you can see it coming once the, so so clearly. One of the things, though, I think, which is the main point, that sometimes Serling doesn't he, like Serling is almost like a, a kid in my in my mind who asks good kashas, but. And the kashas are there, but he doesn't always develop right. the answers. And, and here's the kasha. 
the kasha is how do we decide what's considered beautiful right um you know so is it is beauty basically is it an objective reality yeah or does it represent or is it what merely subjective or, put it or in philosophical right, terms right or let's say let's say in in this planet and i i remember the thing that was most impressive to me when i watched it another time was that there are certain futuristic uh, elements in the hospital, right? There's certain things that are going on, like especially to me, the, the part that resonates is the telescreens. Like once she's running in the hospital, you can see like there are telescreens all over the place. Not only are these, as you say, these grotesque people running after her, but there are screens everywhere. Which is sort right. of like a sort of a Ray Bradbury uh, Fahrenheit type of thing. That there's telescreens or, or George Orwell. The outer limits. <laughs> yeah, like like the screens are everywhere, and you can see, you know, as she's running in, in the hallway, there's the you screen. See the, you see the supreme leader. Right, 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 his, right. His telling stuff. Right. So, is it because Mark um, they represent the mute? In other words, it's, is, is it because this freakishness, which is obviously freakishness because most people on that planet will have the pig snouts, right? Most people have the pig snouts and have what we would call misshapen. Anything else is obviously not the norm. And therefore, they are the elephant men, right? They are the ones who are the freaks. Right. So, so that, you know, is that the idea? Because... In other words, are we supposed to look at people that we know are born with consciousness? No, I, I think, it, as you just said, Avramo, he asks the right penetrating questions, and the questions are more important than the answers in some sense here. Yeah. In other words, the, raising this question, this is a, a thought experiment to, to get you to think about what, what is beauty? Is beauty objective? Is it subjective? Is it communal consensus? What is it? And I think the episode does a, a really dramatic and, and visually powerful job of raising that very question. Right. Look, bio, listen, uh, evolutionary biologists will probably zero in on certain things that they see as objectively beautiful that, that people are sexually attracted to, right? There's certain types of, of face colors and, and uh, sensuousness that animals and humans are connected to that people find attraction. Um, so I think there is, you know, when we talk about, you know, Serling's messages, don't start judging people and say they're not beautiful. Everybody can be beautiful, even, you know, a person that, 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 that is, let's say, uh, a face that's misshapen, a body that's overweight, whatever it is, you have to somehow change yourself and accept beauty and see inner beauty. And, right, and obviously... The eye of the beholder. Right. And, and, and part of what Serling also does in this story and by you know is, is, is serling's message you know we should you know give people a break about the way they look and we should stop we should we, we shouldn't be so externally conscious also mark the 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 kind the kindness of you're going to go live in a leper colony over there right, right. It, 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 it's so to us, like, okay, this is the only answer. The only answer is you should go live in a leprechaun like people like yourself. And that's, right. Right, and, and that is like, maybe, a, maybe that was a, a comment on race issues, perhaps, or issues of segregation. I, I mean, certainly, those are, are timely questions for when, when this was uh, written and aired. Oh, yeah, I, I understand completely. And I think that's, you know, because, you know, it, it, clearly, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the episode sort of ends with hope, but it's really, in a way, uh, as you say, a, an incredibly sharp critique because we still, 
are going to find ourselves biologically attracted to the beauty. We're still going to, you know, elect the guy who looks better than the one who doesn't look so good, right? We're still going to, despite saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder, our society is still going to put an extreme weight on that. And I, you know, I, I'm not sure what Serling is trying to do other than make us think about how, you know, how, how fleeting beauty is and how, how, how unrich it is in terms of, you know, you know, something that, like, okay, it's beautiful and you like looking at it, but does that make that person better? Does that mean that person deserves more? Does that mean that, you know, why can't we live in a society where a person can be somewhat uh, even disfigured and still be taken 100%? But that that world is almost impossible to, to conceive of, right? <laughs> uh, you know, Certainly for, for America in, the, in 1960. Right, and even today, you know, even today, even you know. Today, maybe I, even today. I, I mean, good. We, we've never been more accepting of of, of people with uh, with birth defects. Sure. Uh, but but again, you know, we're we're going to raise millions and millions of dollars for plastic surgery because otherwise that person wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, to have his self confidence. Well, Mark, you know, we could spend. Yeah, we could just do a we could do a Twilight Zone podcast. Actually, we could do you a know, Twilight like, Zone podcast. Yeah, we could just do a Twilight Zone podcast. Um, look, you know, the Twilight Zone was canceled. Uh, eventually and part of it part of it was you know the whole idea of an anthology was something that america was sort of i think uncomfortable with i think what america wanted after the twilight zone was put to bed was more well they still wanted to have the westerns and the detective programs those were more like i would call them like similar to thrill rides at an amusement park. You didn't really care that much about, I mean, you liked the character, you know, whether it was Richard Boone or Mike Connors or whoever it was, but those, those programs usually featured a, a guest star who was either the villain and it was a cat and mouse game. There was going to be a car chase. There's going to be a big fight where Mannix would, would beat the other guy up or be on a helicopter and somehow the villain would, would, would end up dying. And it was really sort of like, uh, uh, it, it wasn't a way to come back to a comfort of friends and family. The programs really, and this was true about Gunsmoke. This was true about um, uh, uh, Bonanza. Again, in other words, James Arness and Kitty you know, we're, we're friendly enough, but the main thing was who's going to be the guest star, who's going to be going to have his issue. And that was the same thing, you know, with Bonanza as well. And, and therefore, it was like a thrill ride. It was a, sort of like a movie, sort of a story, but it didn't necessarily say, I want to be with these people week in and week out. And an anthology didn't do it either. So what really arose was the sitcom and even though it's, it, it isn't just supposed to make you laugh, as, as the Ricardos proved in the 50s, you wanted to come back to that. You somehow felt an affinity to these people. And these were the right. people that were, that in a way, were your substitute family. Now, what was going on when the Twilight Zone was canceled in 1964 till, let's say, around 1970? Basically, 
what was going on was Donna Douglas knew <laughs> she had, she she wasn't in the Twilight Zone anymore, but she was in one of the most popular programs, which was the Beverly Hillbillies, which really ush, which was one of the programs, along with its predecessor, the real McCoy of like a fish out of water sort of story, the Beverly Hillbillies, which is basically about the South Southerners. Uh, it was in a way making fun of sophisticated uh, city folk and in a way embracing the Sylvan Southern uh, beauty. Now, the program, and I'm going to list a couple of them, the Beverly Hillbillies, but even more so was the Andy Griffith Show. The Andy Griffith Show is supposed to be contemporary, but it, and, and it, it, Mayberry is the most, you know, um, like everybody wants to live in Mayberry, right? I mean, everyone wants to, to have a sheriff, you know, who can solve problems like, like Andy Taylor. And, and, you know, and, and, and they have like a, 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 an incredible buffoon like Don Knotts as the, you know, as their, you know, as your guy to make fun of. But, you know, it, it, it was a small town America that people wanted to come to and feel good about. Now, they were living in an America that was excessively industrious, industrial uh, pollution. They were living in America where there were race issues that were bubbling under over all the time. But these sitcoms these southern sitcoms but petticoat junction uh were places where people could go now let me just go one step further after that there was also sitcoms that were insane sitcoms that like the monsters sitcoms like um and, and adam's family the adam's family and the monsters which were sort of like clones of each other right? gilligan's and, island yeah Gil- right where where it's basically insane things are going on like it's and how it's crazy far. can we my mother, the car. Thank you, Yitzchak. Right, which was also like, yeah, the car is basically a reincarnated, uh, a reincarnated woman. Right, it was Anne. It was Anne Southern. Right, Anne Southern is the voice of the car, um, and like, like all the programs. Like, what could, you can see them in the writers' rooms, like in in, 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 in Hollywood, discussing what, what, what can we say? So oh, we also have a woman who, oh, she's a witch. Aha. And, but her husband doesn't want her to act like a witch, I see. And she has a, a lot of kooky witch people that come in. All right. And, and of course, what happens in the 60s is that you are able to do stuff you couldn't even do in the Twilight Zone. You could stop the camera much more often. There was advancements uh, cinematically about what you could do. And then you have shows like I Dream of Genie. And right? so basically what you have is sitcoms that, so, that make you feel comfortable or sitcoms that are completely insane that can never happen. You have a Martian who's living with someone. You have a sitcom about astronauts who go back in time and hang out with, with, with cavemen. And that becomes, for many people, where, where they live. They want to come back to these people week after week. It's not like they have super special guest star that, that, that's an excitement. Now, that was America. America, in a way, was looking for an escape. It was either the escape of the, <laughs> of the totally unbelievable dealing with some sort of space craziness or something or, or monsters or, or, or people from, you know, or the escape of some sort of cocoon-like Southern life that they know was not even true at that time, but was, the, was supposed to be true. Then something happened. What happened was, as we know, the, the, the 1968 and the riots and, 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 and assassinations and it, and the civil rights movement wasn't just a movement anymore. It was a threat. 
and there was there was an idea that that, that especially at the at the Democratic convention of 1968, the election of Richard Nixon, America changed a lot. And what happens when Fred Silverman becomes president of CBS in the uh, or at least the president of programming, he says, we're throwing everything out. We are wiping the slate clean because who is, first of all, the bottom line they thought wasn't there. There's no money. Who's buying it? These old people that are watching our shows, which are in the top in Nielsen's ratings, they're on the top. But nobody is, but they somehow feel, Fred Silverman, that we've got to be gritty. We've got to be with it. We've got to be now. We've got to appeal to this dynamic. It might be the, the, the radical who's growing up, who's going to have a home and family, the, the people who are uh, the Democrats who are, who are now uh, in control, who are now as, uh, in terms of the social zeitgeist. And therefore, all of these shows, basically within a couple, within a year and a half or so, despite where they were holding, end up being canceled. The Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, even what I think is one of the worst Corbonos is uh, Green Acres, which was the absurd version of the Sylvan plan, breaking the fourth wall continuously. All of those get swept away despite their high ratings, and they are replaced. Now, in 1970s is when it started, uh, 70 and 71, and which shows came to replace them? So I want to start with the second show first. I saw the show, Mark, when I was 10 years, I was not even, I was 10. And this was a show that came on in January 1971. It replaced one of my shows I was usually going to watch. I mean, here I was supposed to be doing homework, but I was instead, you know, stuck in front of a television. And a show now, called... Now we understand everything of Rainbow. <laughs> now, now we understand why, why we're doing this show right now. <laughs> yeah. All in the Family comes on. And this is a show where, first of all, it's not the usual film uh, Yitzchak, again, it wasn't, I don't know exactly, it was, it was done on tape, it was done on the, the same sort of, um, uh, I, I forgot exactly what it was, but it wasn't filmed like the Munsters or any of the other programs. And secondly, they are talking about Jews, they're talking about Blacks, they are using uh, things that sound like expletives to me. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this was the dirty words you weren't supposed to be saying, and here was characters acting like that, yelling at each other. There was no, you know, Archie Bunker is no, he's no Ward um, a Cleaver. You know, this is a guy who's, you know, he's, he's cleaving everything. And, and I, even though I know that he was supposed to be making, you're supposed to be making fun of him, but the, the idea of hearing abject bigotry on the screen, a small screen, and um, it was, it, to me, it was a revolution. Now, that show I, has its own adherence, and I don't know how well it's aged, but I want to suggest for our listeners that a show they should at least look into is the, is the, first, uh, uh, the first child of All in the Family, the first spinoff, which is uh, uh, Maud. Uh, again, Maude is a character that I think Norman Lear, who is the creator of All in the Family, Norman Lear, who still, I, Norman Lear, I think, is, is, is on his way to his 100th birthday, right? I think so. Uh, Norman, Lear and, Norman Lear and Bud York and these two Jews, they came, and with Fred Silverman's help, they altered totally and completely what television was going to be about. 
the television was going to be in your face, and especially, here's the point, pushing a very liberal mindset. It was going to it was going to make fun of the bigots. It was going to deal with race relations in a real way. Blacks were going to be part of the program. And we were going to deal with issues like menopause. We were going to do issues like uh, abortion. We were going to deal with issues of homosexuality right up front. And, 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 and you can imagine the difference. Can you imagine Andy Taylor like, two years ago? You know, you know, can you imagine Floyd the Barber telling everybody that he's gay? Could you imagine any of that happening? It was a complete as we say in Yiddish, an Ibrakaridish, totally and completely of what the landscape was. So why do I suggest Maud over all these uh, uh, Yorkin and Lear programs? The reason is, is because I believe, you know, Maud is the opposite of Archie, but she's still Archie-like. She is liberal to a fault. She invites a black militant to her house and she wants to raise $15,000 for his cause. She is, she feels there's nothing wrong with children uh, stripping themselves and exploring their bodies at the age of seven and eight. She is, she's out there for every liberal cause done in, uh, in, in the most heavy handed, pushy way possible. And what the program does is really show you the sword cuts both ways. It shows you that even though it seems like you have right on your hands and you are in, in, in the right mode, but look how, uh, look how you could be oppressive. Look how pushy you can be. Look how, uh, how, how fragile your, your, your beliefs are. And because there are more central things for you to fix. Maud is, a, you know, she has a husband who is a, 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 who drinks much too often. Um, uh, she, she, in a way, uh, is, is, is petty and, and in terms of how she wants to push herself. So I think this program is great because it's willing to expose the supposed nobility of these causes and, 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 and recognize that, yes, you can sometimes talk a good talk. But when you aren't in yourself uh, a, a whole person, when you and yourself are, are, are letting these so-called noble woke causes be everything you are without changing many of your interpersonal skills. When you, when you, when you try to just yell and scream and push your way through and to, you know, she always says, God will get you for that, right? You eat my heart out, you know, bringing down curses on others who disagree with you. I think that allows us to have a balance. And I think it's, I would love many of our friends who are who now believe that this is the only way you can think to take a look at Maud and see is this what you don't you perhaps see some of yourself here now the show is again Yorkin and and Lear uh, hired some of the best writers Susan Harris who of course wrote soap and other things so there's a lot of great writing it, it doesn't necessarily hold up as well as the classic Twilight Zones you're talking about because it very much is a piece of its age but this is, I think, a, a show, a piece of its age that I would like to torpedo into our age. I would like people to say, yeah, okay, look, don't get so Maud on me. Now, Maud, of course, B. Arthur, Yitzchak, you know, B. Arthur's a nice Jewish girl, right? Uh, B. Arthur, is a, she was a Jewish, she was a Jewish, she made her chops on Broadway. I think she had been in a, a lot of Broadway pro shows before she, you know, made her way. I, she might have had some bit parts in movies. I, I'm not sure in the 60s. 
But uh, she had a very um, a strong career in TV, of course. Afterwards, she toned down uh, Maude Findlay a little bit for her character in The Golden Girls. But um, I think she was a um, she was able to convey in so many ways the uh, uh, a uh, the I would say the the pettiness, the, but also you could believe the strength of her convictions, and you can it, it was a a very uh, full fully formed character as opposed to i think archie in many times uh, comes off as so one-sided that you know archie is, is very difficult to take as anyway that's my first pick is maud you can take some of, of those episodes whichever they are i think it's a good antidote i don't know what do you think mark and it's club i'd like to believe that norman lear was as consciously self-reflective as you're suggesting as as a kind of critique of the excessive woke personality uh i'm not sure if i buy that but the truth is i i I was not a big devotee of norman lear i kind of i i found the 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 caricaturing or the cartoonish characters you know, not not all that appealing, and I didn't appreciate the lampooning of of the traditional you know American patriarch. Uh, but I'd like to think that you're right that there's some recognition of the limitations of these personalities, and and there's some lampooning and spoofing of them. But I'm not I I don't know I don't know if if that was really an aim or a goal of of Lear's in in creating a well, character. Well, like look, but put it this way. Um, you know, one of the things, the magic that was trapped in a bottle in Maud and in All in the Family, despite the limitations of the program, is he he hit a home run with his with his cast. The cast yeah. of all look, you might not like Carol. Yeah, they were great ensembles. Right. Yes. The cast is is great. And Maud has an underlooked cast. Conrad Bain does a great job as a Republican, uh, you know, um Nixonite. Um but also shows a lot of uh, sensitivity in places where he realizes that you know he isn't just a, a, a one-note villain. And, and, and I think the episodes that are worth watching, the ones everyone knows about is Maud's abortion, because right. it, it happened right when Roe v. Wade uh, came out, right. and it was a special two-part episode, and it was like, you know, um, you know the laugh track was silenced, you know, when, you know, et cetera. Um, but I think the episodes of Maud that might be worthwhile is <laughs> Lear and his writers end up um, really revealing the the social drinking problem that many of the upper class had because because of the drink. And this was something, as you know, uh, Yitzchak, you know this as well. Hollywood had people drinking, get me a drink, get me a drink, right? It was everybody is socially drinking throughout uh, the, the classic age of Hollywood. What, what Ma does in 1973 or 74 talks about how alcoholism isn't the rummy you know, it's Skid Row, but it's it's many of the the people who come home and 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 and, and drink what they call socially could lead to uh, 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 not only endangering their life of the alcohol, but really ruining uh, the lives of everybody around them. So Maud was really, in many ways, I feel a more courageous program than All in the Family was, and I think therefore it's been overlooked. Overlooked. I have one other, uh, the other one, the other program. There was two trees, Mark that developed in 1970. And the other one was the MTM tree, the Mary Tyler Moore tree. 
And I think those shows have aged much better. I'm not sure if you get a chance uh, to watch any of the old episodes, but um, talk about great ensembles. I mean, that, that ensemble is, is incredible. I mean, I, Gavin McLeod, you know, sort of like rubs me the wrong way. Uh, and I think that's part of the, the way they wrote Murray Slaughter. But Ed Asner and, and Mary herself, the most really exquisite, perfect timed comedian there is, is Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, look, a case can be made about Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett, and Carol Burnett but Mary Tyler Moore had it perfect. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think Carol, uh, Carol didn't trust herself many times. She sometimes found herself, you know, going for the big crazy laugh or doing something, doing the pratfall or doing something outrageous. Mary never does that, but she, but, but again, that's part of the reason why she was so loved. She was really able to coalesce that in such a human way. I, I don't want to really talk so much about Valerie Harper. Yitzhak and I have discussed that in the past, how she was a, a groundbreaking Jewish character where she doesn't have to be Mr. The Goldbergs and be you know, the typical Jew. She's the best friend and she just happens to be Jewish and she owns up to it. Um, so that was a great character. But I want, to, I want to talk about the character that most people remember and laugh about, which is the Ted Baxter character. Now, the Ted Baxter character is, 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 is probably, you know, we know um, uh, Will Farrell, of course, has, uh, you know, has uh, created a, an extension of the Ted Baxter character and his anchorman, right? And, and you know, the, the buffoonish anchorman who is so self-centered. Well, the truth was he was sort of a one-joke character in 1970. But Ted Knight was such an accomplished actor. He was so, he, he was such a perfectionist in what he did that his role became larger and larger as the series developed. And James Brooks and the other writers and directors realized that as much as they would poke phone at, fun at Ted, Ted needed to have a growth arc as well. And he had to become less of a selfish, cheap, you know, a buffoon who was always putting his foot in his mouth and didn't care about anybody except his picture. And Ted, there's a number of episodes, I've discussed them with Yitzhak before, you know, by the way, parenthetically, I've mentioned how Ted is the only one who actually mentions God and who prays to God and whoever mentions God in the whole series. Ted has a heart attack in, in, in season seven. Now, I have to tell you something. Season seven, like the sixth season of Dick Van Dyke, the creators knew that they were going to put this baby to bed. They felt they had told every story they could. You know, we all know, Mark, there's nothing sadder than the chazan who refuses to leave the bima, right? Uh, the, 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 one of the greatness of MTM is that they realized that they had come full circle. There's no more stories to tell. We're not going to somehow introduce, like all in the family did, they introduced Stephanie if you remember, they introduced a Jewish girl once Gloria and Mike went on to other things and Rob Reiner was not on the show. They decide, oh, let, why don't we have Archie adopt this girl? And it turns out that she's Jewish. Right? None of that type of shtick was necessary for MTM. What they did instead was they say, we're just shutting the show down. In that season, Ted has what I believe is one of the most important uh, programs. And I think I show this to my students. Ted has a heart attack. And it's a, it's a mild one, and it's funny the way it occurs. And when Mary tries to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, you know, he talks about himself getting excited, and maybe he is okay and stuff like that. It's, it's extremely funny. 
But what what's very deep about the program is that Ted goes through a change and he realizes that he has come close to death. His Azer Conegdo played impeccably by uh, um, by Georgia Engel, who plays uh, uh, Georgette. Um, she and he realized that he has got to change his life. He has to realize that God was sending him a message and he becomes a different person. He decides that he's going to be, uh, he's going to be um, charitable. He's going to give money. He's going to show his love for the people around him who have helped him. He's not going to, he's going to show that he can care and be someone, but he does more than that. He inspires or tries to inspire his coworkers to relish every single moment of their life and see what sort of gift God has given them. Whether it's something that they're watching, whether it's a bird, whether it's, whether it's the snow coming down, whether it's some, just any simple thing shows and how, how much of a gift it is to be alive and to make use of every moment to do it in a positive way. And Ted keeps on saying this, and the and, 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 and the heroes of the show get sick of hearing it. In other words, they don't want to hear this message because it grates at them. It sounds too canned. It's something they want to hear only in church. They don't want to have it in the newsroom. And and, and even though you 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 always relate to to Lou and Murray and Mary, you know, you're watching them struggle with spirituality and, and, and wanting to, to enact real change until they get it. They, they see it's happening. They can't deny it. And they themselves fall under that spell. And they also start appreciating the world and the gift of what's around them. And the last scene, the three of them, are in a room that you've never seen, your heart, you've never seen, because obviously, look, as much as I've talked about the uh, sophistication of sitcoms, the ones that were filmed before a live audience, there was only a couple of sets that they could put and, and have people, the audience watch. If you remember at MTM, there was Mary's apartment and there was the newsroom. And then there, that was basically the two sets. And then there was Ted's trailer, but that was, right? Here, they have another room, which is the film room that they're all at, and there's a window. And the three of them are watching this incredible sunset. And, 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 and all of them are taken by the, the glory of what it means to be alive, watching God's creation. And of course, Ted comes in, and he's not affected anymore because his tshuva has passed. His Yom Kippur moment of, of, of being a person who wants to change his life and he wants to use every moment, it's dissipated. It doesn't mean much to him because he's already a, a couple of weeks beyond this heart attack. I thought this episode was, was really, a, as you call it, a trigger. I think this is a great episode when we deal with you know, events that we become inspired by spiritually. And why? The episode really asked the question, why does it fade? Why does it come? And in fact, they even admit that we might not have this feeling tomorrow. But let's Take, make the most of it today. I, 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 and again, to me, that I, the whole seven years of the show might have been worth it to really produce uh, an episode of such, of such depth. Um, and, and it really forces us. I think in the, it, it's not, I don't need Rod Serling to show up at the end and say, you know, <laughs> you know, right. like, imagine why can't you look at the sun and I, I, you, 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 because Mark, 
these characters, as I've said before, you've connected to them in the last right. seven years. They're your family. They're, They're your you. family. Yeah. They're your you. Well, and that's then, great. That sounds like an episode that I want to watch with a yeah. new set of eyes. <laughs> and, and, and again, you know, we, we, we ask this question ourselves every single time. Hashem will Kim seven times over. And, and we walk out of Yom Kippur saying, we are going to relish every moment that yeah. God keeps us alive. Yeah. Um, and That's yet, great. yeah. All right, Mark. So, uh, Mark, I think this definitely qualifies as darshaning to the extreme. Yes, definitely. Darshaning to the extreme about vintage TV. Um, yes. All right. Thank you. All right. Watch your step on the here. Watch your step on the way out. Be well, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.